0: If you join me in Luke chapter 12, Luke 12, we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. The title of our sermon this morning is Acknowledging Christ. Our key words for our worshipers in training are leaven, fear, and acknowledge. One of the most well-known Christians of the early church was a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was born around 70 AD during the time of the apostles, also a time where there was widespread martyrdom of the Christian church in Asia Minor. Polycarp was sold as a child as a slave to a wealthy woman named Callisto. She reared Polycarp as her very own son. In his early years of life, Polycarp became a Christian. And as he grew older, we know from historical records that the Apostle John was one of his mentors, along with others who had been around during the days of Christ. Now, Polycarp was actively involved in serving the Lord in the church of Smyrna. And upon the death of who became his mother, Callisto, he became the heir to all of her estate, and it was large. And so he used this inheritance for the cause of the church, for the advance of the cause of Christ, to help those who were in need and to help the church as it began and continued its mission. Now, eventually, Polycarp was appointed to be the pastor of the church of Smyrna. He faithfully ministered in that church for many, many years, leaving behind many writings that can be accessed and Uh, very helpful for us today. Now, during Polycarp's ministry, Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome and Christians were being slaughtered for their faith every single day. And for many years, Polycarp was, was spared. But eventually, the persecution was so widespread, eventually it came to him as well. When soldiers arrived to to take Polycarp away, his friends insisted on hiding him, but Polycarp did not want to hide. So when they saw him coming, when when Polycarp saw the, uh, the soldiers coming to take him away, he went out and he greeted them warmly and he offered them food. And they took the food and as they were eating, he requested that he be allowed to pray before they take him away. And for two hours he prayed fervently, out loud. And one account of the event states, inasmuch that many of the soldiers began to repent that they were coming out against so godly an old man. And when he, had done, when he was all done praying, they set him on a donkey and they took him into the city to be tried as one who is an enemy of the authorized pagan religion of the day. When he arrived, they sat him on a chariot and began to urge him that Caesar was God and that he should offer a sacrifice to Caesar. They said, there is no harm in this, is there? At first, he refused to answer at all. But finally, after they continued to press him, Polycarp said, I shall not do what you are seeking to persuade me to do. And this made all of the judges very angry at him. They had confidently supposed that they would be able to easily persuade him to do what they wanted him to do. And and when they couldn't, they became very vicious in their words and in their actions. They literally threw him off of the chariot that he'd been sitting on, caused him serious injury. This display of force incited a, a bloodthirsty mob to the point that they were so loud, accounts say, that in their curses and jeers, they couldn't even hear themselves yelling. And many of the accusers that were around sought to persuade Polycarp to deny his faith, saying things like, reverence your old age, swear by Caesar's fortune, repent and say, take away the wicked. One historian writes, Polycarp, upon hearing that, looked with a stern countenance upon the whole multitude of wicked Gentiles that were gathered together. And he lifts and he shakes his hands at all of them. And he looks up to heaven and groaning groaning says, Take away the wicked. The judge finally said, Swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. And it's at this point that Polycarp gives his now famous response. Eighty and six years I have now served Christ. And he has never done me the least wrong." How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And the judge then angrily urges him to swear by the genius of Caesar. And Polycarp refuses but offered to share his faith in Christ. And the judge rejected the offer and he threatened, I have wild beasts ready to those I will cast you, except you, repent. And Polycarp responds calmly, call for them then. For we Christians are fixed in our minds not to change from good to evil, but for me it would be good to be changed from evil to good. And the furious judge said, seeing that you despise the wild beasts, I will cause you to be devoured by fire unless you should repent. And Polycarp answers, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and so is extinguished. But do you not know of the fire of the future judgment? And of that eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly? Why do you tarry? Bring forth whatever you will. And the judge loudly cried out three times, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. And the mob responded in fury, This is the doctor of Asia, the father of the Christians, the overthrower of our gods. He that has taught so many not to sacrifice nor pay worship to the gods. At first they cried out that the lion should be loosed on him and then that he should be burned alive. And so they took Polycarp to the stake where they're going to nail him. And he spoke him and said, Let me alone as I am. For he who has given me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without you securing me by the nails to stand without moving in the pile. And so they merely tied him to the stake. And he prayed out loud before the fire was kindled. And upon his amen, the executioner lit the fire. But historical accounts say something very strange happened. The flames, as they lit, arched around Polycarp like a sail of a ship filled with wind. And he would not burn. After some time, the command was given to the executioner to stab him with a sword. So he did. And the result was that so much blood flowed from the wounds that it extinguished the flames of the fire. And eventually the the fire was rekindled and Polycarp's body was burned to ashes. A Polycarp was faithful to the Lord unto death. Now while none of us have experienced persecution to the extent of Polycarp, there are Christians persecuted and killed all across the world today because they are Christian. Because they proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and that all men everywhere must repent of their sin and believe the gospel if they are to be saved. There are new Christian martyrs numbered with Polycarp every single day because they refuse to deny Christ. They refuse to stop talking about Christ. They refuse to stop preaching the gospel. They refuse to stop meeting with other Christians for worship, and they refuse to bend their knee to false gods and false emperors. And in our text this morning, we're going to read the very clear exhortation given by Christ that we, as his people, we have an obligation to acknowledge him before men as the only Savior, the only Lord, the only way of salvation. And we stand upon the shoulders of great men and women like Polycarp in the Christian church. The question is, do we, like Polycarp, acknowledge Christ before men? Do we fear God more than we fear man? Are we hypocrites? Well, let's read what the Lord Jesus has to say, beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be be proclaimed. On the house Now, obviously, the crowds following Jesus and seeking to hear all that he says continue to increase exponentially. There is so large a crowd that is so intent on gathering near Jesus at this point that they begin trampling one another. Luke identifies that there are so many thousands of people. Everywhere he went, there were people. It's really incredible. Now, notice Jesus turns to his disciples to talk. But the clear indication here is that while his disciples were the primary audience, others could hear and learn and be rebuked by Jesus all the same. So what does he say to his disciples? He gives them a warning. Beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, the leaven that comes into the mix by the Pharisees is hypocrisy and we know if you've done any cooking that a little leaven leavens the whole loaf a little bit of hypocrisy has an effect has far-reaching consequences on every part of the body beware they were an insincere insincere morally deficient evil legal-hearted bunch and their influence was very very destructive and if they made it into the mix, the mix is completely ruined. Jesus said, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have set in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You see, a man may be a hypocrite like a Pharisee. He may say one thing or believe or delight in his heart in another, but there is nothing. There is nothing that is hidden from God. There is nothing hidden from the omniscient creator of the whole universe. And hypocrisy is exposed completely. It is exposed fully by God. And so Jesus' warning to the disciples is, don't be a hypocrite like the Pharisees. Their judgment will be severe. Don't fool yourselves into thinking that God doesn't know what's going on in your life as if God is clueless about the the deliberations of your heart. But we do that, don't we? We assume that we can hypocritically say one thing, but our our hearts and in our lives we can do something else altogether. Most often it happens when we're all alone. Alone with our thoughts alone in front of our computer screens and televisions, around people we don't know and we think we're anonymous. What a foolish and ignorant heart to assume that as long as I am saying the right things and acting in the right way in front of people that know me, that God is pleased and my life behind closed doors doesn't really matter. While the true intentions and attitude of my heart are completely opposite of my words and my actions before others. We all do this in various ways. We need to beware of hypocrisy. Ladies, do you spend the day blessing people's hearts while in your own heart you want nothing than to scratch their eyes out? Men, do you show disdain for the immodesty of women in your workplace and then go home and look at pornography when everyone's in bed? Teenagers, do you self-righteously judge the pregnant 16-year-olds you know while you yourselves engage in sexual immorality? Children, do you tattletale on your friends or your brother or sister for doing the very same thing you just did yourself? You see, we all tend toward gross hypocrisy when dealing with the sins of others and not looking at the source of our own sin, our hearts, our own hearts. But Jesus warns us here that full disclosure will come on the judgment day. Everything will be revealed and the disclosure will be ruthless. The things whispered invisibly in the dark will be shouted in full light from the rooftops. So is the answer to simply stop considering sin to be sin and saying, well, no one's perfect, so I'm not going to say anything. That's between them and God. By no means. Jesus' warning is meant to drive us to consider our own hearts and to repent. You see, we avoid exposure to the judgment by owning up to the reality of our hearts and trusting that by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts will be transformed and our lives will be made consistent and honest. We will be delivered from the vile hypocrisy that so frequently invades our lives. But we can't miss the overarching point here that is in play with the rest of our text this morning. Why are we hypocritical? Why are we so prone to say and do certain things in public before those who know us when we are in private, we do as we please, knowing full well it's inconsistent with what we've said and what we've portrayed. Why do we do that? Because we fear man more than we fear God. It is, ironically, a lack of acknowledgement that God is who he says he is, that Christ is Lord, and that we are who we say we are. Instead, it's saying, I need to save face in front of others. I need others to think I'm holy and have it all together. Giving no thought to the Lord who knows and sees all things. Christians, here's the deal. Why is it that in order for us to be Christians, we readily acknowledge that God requires us to admit admit that we are totally messed up and sinful and in need of him? Yet, when so many of us become Christians, we fight so hard to hide our sin and pretend like we have it all together. Because here's the truth, the more we know about God, the more we grow in Christ, the more we progress in the Christian life, the more we should be recognizing, I'm not what I think I am, I'm far worse. I need Jesus more than I ever thought I did before. Brothers and sisters, we must be honest about that. If so, if we're honest about that, there's no reason to fear man. There's no reason to be a hypocrite before men. When we are honest about our condition, we are freed up to be who we are in Christ, depending day by day by day upon his grace. Not in our own works, not in our own presentation of who we want people to think we are, but Christ. God knows our hearts. God knows our thoughts. God knows our deeds. Why are we hiding? Nothing can be hidden and all will be revealed. And Jesus says, beware lest you walk in the shoes of the hypocritical Pharisees. He goes on in verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. So Jesus tells us now, why would you fear men? Why would you even think to do that? Which is hypocritical. What does it gain you to have the approval of man? The worst he can do is kill your body. Don't fear man, fear God. He can cast your body and your soul into everlasting hell. Oh, how desperately. I want us to be people like Polycarp. Or Martin Luther, who, standing before the archbishop at the Diet of Worms, was asked, answer candidly and without horns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and your heirs which they contain? And Luther said first in German and then in Latin, since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reasoning, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. The fear of God. A right and true fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And without a fear of God, we know nothing. And may God grant us that we would have a wholesome fear that Jesus commands of the disciples, that we would not be hypocrites, that we not be weak in proclaiming that which is right and true, that we not falter in proclaiming God's Word says... And stand upon the truth that he has given us. Kent Hughes writes We need Moses' fear before the burning bush when he tre- with trembling hands, he removed his sandals and hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. We need Isaiah's fear, who cried out, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We need a fear like Luther's, the grand liberating fear of God. It is a liberating day when we see God's awesome purity and holiness in our own sin and finiteness and tremble before God as earth's fears flee. Brothers and sisters, in our day there is a great fear of man that has crippled the church. And as a result, many Christians have backed away from proclaiming boldly and clearly the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that if we love him, we will do what he commands and that God's standard is the standard and no other standard is acceptable. No other standard will do. There is only one savior who is Jesus Christ. Heaven and hell are real and God's word is true. Where is the prophetic voice of the church in the face of moral ineptitude? The church must be clear about what God has said. Abortion is murder. Homosexuality is a sexual perversion and is sin. Marriage is a sacred covenant between one man and one woman. God is holy and requires obedience from his people. And Islam and Hinduism and Taoism and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and Scientology and on and on and on are all false religions and cults and they're leading people to hell. And the church is not a playground. It is not a talent show but for the solemn worship of God and the proclamation of his word and the sexually immoral and drunkards and swindlers and thieves and the greedy and revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God that is the voice of the church that is the truth of his word and we cannot fear man lest we lose what God has given us why do we fear man why do we refuse to make clear what God has said Instead, we have people who sit on national television claiming to be Christian ministers. They're asked a straight question about whether or not those who do not repent of their sin and believe on Christ will go to heaven or to hell. And the answer is, well, you know, I don't know. I'm very careful about saying who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. I I leave that up to God. I don't know. I don't know if people who don't believe in Christ are wrong. I just don't know. In the words of Pastor Stephen Lawson, give us some men who know the truth and who will declare the truth and will stand with Athanasius and Polycarp and Calvin and Luther and Whitfield and Edwards and who will declare from the housetops that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Dr. Lawson said recently the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. They're pretty boys. You see, it's not as though God has left these things up for our interpretation. They're clear, they're plain in the Bible. So when you hear Christians floundering on issues that are unquestionable in the scriptures, it's not because God hasn't spoken clearly. It's because of a fear of man and a clear lack of a fear of God. But Jesus reassures us that there is no need to fear man. What's he going to do? Kill you? Big deal. We just heard it in our text earlier from Philippians. To live is Christ, but to die, that is gain. He can only kill you. Only God has the power not only to kill, but to eternally condemn But if you are a child of God, you have nothing to fear coming from man. God is for you. God will watch over you. God will protect you. This is what Jesus tells us in verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valued and many sparrows. And Jesus argues here from the lesser to the greater. God loves and cares about the sparrows that you can buy for two pennies. God knows that you have 145,532 hairs on your head. You are made in his image. We are his prime creation, his crown jewel. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you fear man, brothers and sisters? God cares for you. God is caring for you. God is protecting you. God is your strength. God is your comforter. God is your protector and your provider. He cares about dirty, cheap birds. How much more does he care for you? You see, we fail to acknowledge Christ in our fear of man because we assume that the truth of God's word is too hard. It's too real. It's too abrasive and people will reject us. So our tendency is to back down. But here's the reality. Here's the truth that we need to make clear. If you are not in Christ, please hear me. You are an enemy of God and you are condemned already. God commands you to repent of your sin and believe the gospel. But if you are in Christ, He is 100% irrevocably for you and with you all the days of your life unto everlasting days in eternity with Him. Sinner, friend, won't you come to Christ? Won't you repent of your sins and believe in the gospel of Christ? As it stands, you are His enemy. You are at enmity with Him. He calls you to admit you are filled with sin. You have no hope without Jesus cry out for God's mercy, escape the wrath of God to come and he will save you and he will be for you forever. And Jesus continues beginning in verse eight. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. True faith in Christ includes a verbal confession from our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, it's not enough that we would simply believe on Christ in our hearts, but never express it with our mouths. We are expressing our allegiance. We are siding with Christ. We are making known the reality that we are his and he is ours. Otherwise, if we are unwilling to make known that we are in Christ, that he is our Lord, do we really have faith? We are fools to think that we can be silent about our faith in Christ and still be true children of God. Think of it. Jesus died for me. He gave his life that I might live forever. But I don't want to talk about him. I'm sure that we all know people who want to say that our faith and what we believe is strictly a private matter and not something to talk about. I've got news, especially if that person claims to be a Christian. Jesus has said quite the opposite. He gave the same warning back in Luke chapter 9, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Why wouldn't we want to say anything? Why would we want to be quiet about Christ? It's a fear of man. Afraid of what others will say. Afraid of being laughed at. Afraid of causing a stir. Afraid of upsetting the apple cart. But brothers and sisters, Jesus makes very clear that denying him before men is far worse eternally than anything that might come on this earth as a result of doing so. We may face horrendous persecution, and I'm convinced that in my lifetime many of us will. We may be brought to be burned at the stake, but that is nothing compared to the eternal consequences of denying God. And then Jesus gives a second warning of which we are probably familiar, but many misunderstand in verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is something that was prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah said, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. What a terrible word from God. But what is it? What does it mean to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, we saw it a few weeks ago when the Pharisees claimed that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. In other words, they were attributing the work and power of God to Satan. That is, we learn from Matthew and Mark, the unforgivable sin. You see, Jesus says here that sins against him can be forgiven. It doesn't mean that those sins are a small thing, but they can be forgiven. Some blaspheme Christ, but they repent, and their blasphemy is not the final word. Many blasphemers, all of us, have been saved. But those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit by attributing his work and witness to Satan are damned. This is not so much a matter of blasphemous language per se, but of a conscious, persistent, wicked rejection of the Spirit's witness. It is a setting of the mind against the Spirit of God. Now Jesus' words were meant to bring a sobering shock to the heart of those who had been toning down their confession of Christ in hopes of escaping the impending persecution. They saw it coming. And they feared man. And Jesus is giving them a very stern, very clear warning. He is calling them to hear the wake-up call and continue their good confession of Christ. And he ends this section by saying, beginning in verse 11, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour... What you ought to say. It is the way of Jesus to not leave his disciples beat down and discouraged, but to remind them of God's love for them and his provision and care for them as his children. After his terrible warning regarding blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and of failing to acknowledge Christ before men, he wants to remind them that the Holy Spirit is their helper. He continues along the same theme. And here's his promise. If you are brought before men, if you are tried before a judge for that which you faithfully execute in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory, do not worry about what you are to say. Don't be anxious. Don't fear man. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. The Holy Spirit will give you words. The Holy Spirit will guide you. The Holy Spirit will help you. The Holy Spirit is with you. We see the very thing in action in Acts chapter 4 when, when Peter stood before the Sanhedrin and was being tried for healing a man in the name of Jesus. Luke writes of that account telling us Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he spoke and the result in the end is that the Sanhedrin saw the courage of Peter and of John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. I love that. And the members of the Sanhedrin were astonished that they, and they took note of these men that they had been with Jesus. So while we should know the scriptures and at all times be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks about the reason for the hope within us, we will face situations in life that we can never prepare for. And the Holy Spirit's astounding grace will sustain us and teach us in that very hour what to say. Again, the theme here is clear. Do not fear man. Do not fear what man will do. Acknowledge Christ and the Spirit will help you with all of the results. Brothers and sisters, some of you may function day to day in your workplaces and around your neighbors like you're the Christian Secret Service or the Christian CIA. You're always undercover and nobody really knows you're a Christian. Friends, if this is the case... It may very well be the case that you're not a Christian. If you've bought into the statement that whenever possible, preach the gospel, when necessary, use words, you've bought into a lie. The gospel is a proclamation, and professing Christ as my Savior is something I do with words. My actions are simply confirmation of those words, proving whether or not we are hypocrites. But with gentleness and respect, we should consistently and joyfully confess Christ whenever possible. If we are professing Christians, but we do not confess Christ openly, we are hypocrites, and our insincerity will be ruthlessly proclaimed at the judgment When we shy away from openly confessing Christ, we fear man and lack a proper fear of God. We do not see who he is and who we are, because if we feared him as we ought, we would not fear to tell men who he is. When we fail to confess Christ openly, we have forgotten our immense worth and the incredible care that he gives to us. Trust God. Trust the work of the Holy Spirit. He will guide you. He will help you to speak the truth about Christ before men. That is His task. And He never, ever fails. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word to convict our souls and to remind us of what You command of us, that we might be obedient to you. May it be, God, that we would be a people who clearly and loudly proclaim the truth of your word, not backing down, not afraid of man, but fearing you rightly, that we would have true knowledge, that we would be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect That we would proclaim clearly that by grace we have been saved apart from works of the law. That Christ is our Redeemer. Christ is our Savior. And lest others repent, they will perish. Father, we pray that you would make us a bold people for the sake of Christ. Acknowledging him before men. Father, help us. When we face fear, to preach to ourselves, I believe the Holy Spirit, our helper, our friend, the one who guides us and leads us and gives us wisdom and discernment and helps us to remember the truth and helps us to stand boldly before men and acknowledge Christ. Father, let us not keep it a secret, but let us be clear in what your word has said and what you call us to. And may we live not as hypocrites, but as a people who, although we sin and seek you in our repentance, are seeking to live consistent lives, that our profession of our mouths and the words of our lips are lining up with the actions of our lives and in our hearts. Purify us, O God. Make us to be a holy people for your sake, for your glory, for your renown in all the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.